Redacted, and, and we have a guest. We do. Am I introducing myself now? Is this how this works? Go for can it. You introduce me. How do we do this? Introduce yourself. Whatever you want to say. <laughs> I wish you had like cue cards I could read off of, and you could hold them up, and I could be like, "I'm Alex." The best thing is we just edit to pieces. When the listenership hears this, they'll be like, "Wow, he just said his name real fast. He knew what to do." I want to get cue cards though. You know, in Shrek, where they're at the wedding, they have the little cards. Yeah. We should get those in that style. I feel like a, or a laugh track as well. Just like bring it back to '90s and just do a laugh track. Those are so unfortunate. I fucking hate laugh tracks. Good. So much. I used to not have an opinion about them until someone sent me a YouTube video that was the Big Bang Theory with the laugh track removed. Oh, yeah. And seeing the amount of awkward pauses where there should be a laugh track, you can't unsee it. So now if I watch anything with a laugh track, my boyfriend gets so mad because I refuse to watch like such a big category of shows because I just watch the actors say a joke and then be like, and I can't, I can't do it. Like I can't, it's breaking the fourth wall too much for me and I can't do it. And I don't know if this is true, but I read online that most laugh tracks were recorded a really long time ago. So most of the people laughing are dead. Well, that took a macabre turn very quickly. Okay, cool. <laughs> You're a fourth grade teacher. You should have been prepared for this. So oh back, back to the focus of this episode. Yes. On a rare, rare teacher quit talk moment, there's a man here. So Alex, tell us about yourself. What do you do for a living? What do you hate for a living? <laughs> What's up? Uh, I'm a fourth grade teacher. Things I hate. Um, I mean, there's the obvious ones. My obvious bet noirs are all of the isms, right? You know, like the racism, yeah. the sexism. Those are the obvious ones. Uh, a very strong hate I have is the office and mint. And so those are things that people both enjoy. And I have a very large disdain for both of them. Wait, those. mint, the flavor? Even fresh mint? the financial planning app? The flavor, the scent, all the of herb? it. The herb? The herb, all of it. Wow. All of it. I hate mint in drinks. I like mint gum and I like mints, but don't put mint in any anything else. It does not belong in cocktails. Get that out of here. It belongs in every cocktail. Have fun drinking your toothpaste alcohol. I hope you're enjoying yourself. If you get peppermint flavoring, that is not the move. But if you get like a mint leaf, I'm... No. Wow. No. What about the financial planning app? Do we like that one? Um, I will say neutral opinions. So zero shade thrown that way. Okay. They haven't done me wrong. Mint, you can still sponsor us. Yes. There you go. We're here for the sponsorships. We don't have any. We don't make a single dime. This is a charity podcast. Anyways, are you done with the school year, Alex? Uh, no, we've got like a week and a half left. This is my actually like really unpopular opinion. I could do this part of the year five ever. Like oh, yeah. we're done with standardized testing. I know my class really well. We've got the routines down. It's a good vibe in the class. Like I don't feel a lot of pressure. I'm pretty much done with report cards. The weather is mm-hmm. warm. And I've had people say, don't you just want the year to end? And I'm like, no, I could keep doing this actually. This is okay with me. Like March is the distant memory right now. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to miss them. Oh, I'm going to miss this. And then you get all sentimental. Yeah, March. I. I hardly can recognize her. Like, I, March feels like so long ago, you know, right. and I, for good reason. Our brains protect us from trauma. October's worse than March to October me. and March <laughs> are brutal. I would usually have spring break in March. So March to me, it's like March is like a reprise. You didn't even make it to March last year. That's valid. But to be <laughs> fair, I started trying to quit in October. Okay, so well, there you go. It just took me till February to find a job. I've always been told don't make career decisions in October or March as a teacher, but... Oops. 
I decided. See, at this point, though, I'm into it. I'm like, if you're having a bad time, you should make yourself feel better. Just leave. Who cares? It's not worth it. Alex, have you always taught fourth grade? Like, how'd you get into teaching? And what kind of things have you taught? Actually, I went into undergrad and I wanted to be a dentist. You have nice teeth. You're made for it. Uh Uh-huh. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's a compliment I love getting. I I really wanted to be a dentist and I went into undergrad and I was like, okay, this is the move for me. And I started taking chemistry classes and I was like, this is not the move for me. Like, I just, this is not my academic strength. Let's not do this. Me with pre-med. Okay, I can't do math. Bye. Yep, yep. (laughs) Two things that give the same energy. Exactly. And then I was like, okay, well, like law school seems like a good fit. Like, I love reading and writing. I feel like I can make a good argument. And the person I was dating at the time when I was an undergrad was a special education major. And she was like, well, you don't have a job. So do you want to volunteer with me? And I was like, yes, I'll do whatever you want. As you should. Of course, right? And she was volunteering with an organization that had programming for both disabled children and adults. And I did both of those. And I was like, wait, this is way better than the idea of law school. And I did it the the subsequent summer as well. And then I started working at a day camp. And I was like, okay, I, I do not need to go to law school. I need to move into education. So finished undergrad and then kind of immediately went back to grad school, got a master's in teacher certification. And so now this is my eighth year of teaching. Eight years. You made it past the statistic year. Good job. We don't get a lot of those around here. No. Some of us tapped out at year five. Three. I literally have been so <laughs> depressed this week about not teaching. My husband was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know my identity. To me, the hard not teacher weeks are like the first couple weeks of school, the last mm. couple weeks of school, and right before Christmas break. Like when I was seeing everyone post their class Christmas parties on Instagram, and I was at my office answering emails, I was like, this is fucking bullshit. I want to watch the Polar Express. And we're supposed to host an event twice a month at my office. And I pitched, we all bring our sleeping bags because we have a giant projector room. And I said, let's fucking watch the Polar Express and make hot chocolate. And management said no, but that would have been our highest attendance event. That would have been amazing. Right? People love that. And I was going to tell people to bring their kids if they wanted. I was like, we can all be downstairs with our little sleeping bags and we're going to have fucking fun, whether you like it or not. We're going to have fucking fun, everyone. I love this idea and I'm sad that it didn't happen. Do you get to watch the Polar Express with your class? Is that something you've done? I'll be honest, I've never seen Polar Express. (gasps) Me either. Neither of y'all have seen Polar Express? No. It's not a good movie. Like, I would never sit down and be like, alone and be like, let me watch the Polar Express. But to watch it in that environment is the only way for it to be viewed. See, the other thing is, I've never watched a Christmas movie at school with my kids. Oh, right. Because you're in California, so you guys are like inclusive. I'm used to being in Georgia where it's like, (laughs) I'm used to being in Southern states where they're like, if you don't celebrate Christmas, I guess you can still watch. In Pennsylvania, it was very much like, that was my upbringing. But we do a really fun thing though, where we do all the holidays. That is fun. Honestly, it's kind of amazing because we do winter. We also do Hanukkah. We do Christmas. We do Kwanzaa. Like we have a solid like three months of every holiday. Dia de los Muertos, Halloween. Oh my God, we we go hard. The greatest thing about kindergarten is that you can sneak it all into like aligned with standards land. It's like, oh, well, if you look at the social study standards in kindergarten, they're all looking at how they fit into the world around them. So that 
is cultures. That is holidays. So mm, we have to do all of it. Sorry, everyone. So <laughs> I'm jealous of elementary teachers for that. I remember I was trying to do like a winter holiday party of some sort, and we were in the World War One unit, and I was oh. like, this is hard. I was like, that was a tough war. Oh. I was like, a lot of people died. It was nasty. Trench warfare does not really inspire holiday cheer. It does not lend itself to cheer. No. For many reasons. I can't teach big kids, but that that is one of them. I like teaching World War One because you get to teach them about when they were using flamethrowers as weapons and everyone always gets really riled up about that so that's kind of fun if anybody could inspire kids to be excited about just about anything it's you well because that was before we had rules of war so it was literally just like fucking go nuts go crazy whatever weapon you could think of come through and they did didn't they (laughs) imagine being fucking 16 and german in the trenches and some motherfucker comes up to you with a flamethrower i can't imagine it just I'm going to have a heart attack. <laughs> so, anyway, Alex, did you go straight into teaching fourth or what? have you taught other elementary grades? I've taught fourth for seven years and the year that I taught third grade was 2019-2020. Mm. So of all the years to go down a grade, it would have been the year that Mark's 2020 rolls around. The beauty of that was that I ended up moving back to fourth the following year. And so I had a number, I didn't end up looping, but I had a number of the same students. And I'm like, wow, I feel like we just have like such like that connection of like we went through like a life altering thing together through third and fourth grade, I essentially did COVID with this group of kids. I'll never forget that. They're never going to forget it either. When they're like in the nursing home and the younger nursing home people weren't alive in COVID, they're going to talk about you and doing school with you when they're like 90. Isn't that crazy to think about? That's honestly what they used to say. They'd be like, oh man, imagine we have like kids or grandkids and they're not going to know about this and we have to like show them yearbook photos, be like, we wore masks like all day. And so they even recognize like the historical significance of they're like, we're living through history. And then their grandkids are going to be like, why do we have to eat sand for dinner? Um, (laughs) If you look, things are not really going that great in this country. Like there's, there's never onions at the store. I think onions are the first to fall. Has anyone else noticed this? No, that's just fucking Florida redacted. (laughs) There's something wrong with your state. You just need to go across a state line and you're going to be like, wow, there are so many onions here. (laughs) To import our onions (laughs) now. Ron DeSantis, part of his evil agenda. There's something wrong over there. And it begins with the onions. Exactly. onions are the first pillar of Rome to fall. It's the canary in the coal mine. mine. Yes, thank you. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And here I was going to be like, oh, that group of kids is so special. And somehow we pivoted into fucking onions. They are special. They were. I mean, like, not only the students, but the parents. I feel like we bonded so hard. Like, class community forged in fire. Like, I'm still in touch with so many of the students and the parents. But um, you're not just teaching now you're also a student now right (laughs) yes i'm a second year doctoral student as well so looks like you're getting the doctor title after all how the tables turn you didn't need to be a dentist look at you you didn't need to do math that's very true it worked its way out in the end you get to be doctor in the fun way where you don't have to raise your hand on a plane if there's a medical emergency i'm really excited for you to tell everybody what your research is yeah what are we researching what are the numbers saying no my my research interests are focused on the emotional challenges of teaching. In particular, the constructs that I look at are stress, burnout, and emotional labor. And I have a bit of a focus on what this looks like in women educators, because as I was kind of going through the process of landing here, the first 
study that I read, which was by Alyssa Headley Dunn and colleagues in 2020, changed my outlook on everything. It was like a qualitative study that just looked at the idea of emotions that women educators were expressing and which ones they felt they couldn't, this kind of idea of outlaw emotions, emotions kind of off limits for women to express given societal constructs. I have a guess about one of them. I'd love to hear which the one. The first one that came to mind is rage. You're not allowed to be rageful as a woman, especially in the classroom. Yes. Yeah, anger I would say is... just in society at large, but especially, yes. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying we should like rage room in the school, but. I would argue that almost any teacher is not allowed to be rageful in the classroom. <laughs> but generally cer certain genders face a little harder consequences. Yeah, for sure. You actually are allowed to be rageful in the classroom if you are wearing khakis a polo shirt and you also have a sport coaching license then it's screaming's fine that's a life hack if you like to scream at kids become a coach and then you get paid to do it <laughs> so what has your research shown about what emotions are not allowed what did you find was off limits um i'm getting to that point in in my research now but just in terms of what i had read in existing literature is right anger was the first one that showed up women expressing anger was seen as essentially problematic but men expressing anger, especially for men in authority, of like, okay, they're assertive, like they're taking charge mm. of the situation. And I also want to caveat this too, is that like the conversations that I tend to have about gender exist in a binary because of the fact that so much literature that exists is literally viewing gender in a binary. I already know that my eventual dissertation will have some line about like, yes, I'm viewing gender in a binary, but like we need to do more literature and like what does emotional expression look like outside of this? But just to that binary, anger was the first one that showed up. Literature too talks about women being overly emotional, quote unquote, getting upset or crying and it tends to like devalue the point that they're making by other folks. And so I think those points initially really got me thinking like, I need to look a little deeper at this. And especially considering the fact that circa two years ago, 89% of educators who are elementary educators, they identify as a woman. So like I'm working in a space where I'm the only male classroom teacher at my school. I'm constantly working with other women and their experience is different in the world than mine. It's different in schools than mine. And that's kind of what led me to kind of go down the rabbit hole of like, okay, well, what else comes with this idea of like women expressing their emotions? And I kind of saw like, oh, stress, oh, burnout, oh, emotional labor. And so the current study that I'm doing kind of focuses on those constructs in different ways. But there's a whole lot to that. Do you think that women not being able to express these emotions is contributing to their burnout? Yeah, so that's something that we're just going to see what it is and we'll see what the data tells me because literature has given mixed results, but there's definitely a good amount of literature that has shown emotional labor has ties with stress and burnout and like the idea of not being able to express emotions in the way that one would want has ties to stress and burnout and stress and burnout have ties to attrition and turnover. So for me, like this is one of the factors. I mean, the amount of factors that exist and stress and burnout are almost too many to count, but I think this is one in particular that I wanted to learn more about. And so the kind of second part of my study is qualitative. I'm just going to be asking teachers questions. And this is what I want to dive into is like, let's talk about emotional labor and see if you believe that your gender plays a role in your emotional expression or not. We'll find out, but studies have shown that that tends to be the case. That's why I think I'm interested in contributing to the findings one way or another. I read a thing one time, I can't remember if it was like legitimate research or just like an opinion article, but they were talking about 
about how someone somewhere at some point did like stress measurements on people, like on the physical factors of stress, like of your heart rate, things like that in a work environment. And they figured out that like one of the biggest triggers that gives you physical stress in a work environment is when you are having to give a persona that's not what you feel. And the example that they gave was with restaurant servers where you have to like really put on a fake face of your emotions and how like that is one of the like most stressful things you can do that tires you out the fastest is having to not show your emotions. And I think from a worker standpoint, we usually think of that in customer service businesses, but I think it's really prevalent with teaching and especially with women in teaching because you have a lot of gender stereotypes on top of you, especially like there's a while ago on the podcast where we read like the rules for women teachers from like the early 1900s and stuff like that. So I can see where that's really closely intertwined with gender because so much of gender for women is also performative. I mean, what you're describing is the idea of emotional labor, changing your emotions to fit the emotional rules of an organization. And Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is that like the emotional rules of an organization are like tacit agreements. It's very rare that people actually say out loud, like, hey, here are the list of 10 things that you can and can't do emotionally. So it tends to just be like what you've come to understand about yourself, given the world you grew up in. And so like we've hit this like macro systemic issue, right? Of like society tells us that women should behave in a certain way. And so that very much ties into emotional labor and beginning literature on emotional labor was really looking at service industries. There's one book by Hoskchild in 1983 that talks about flight attendants having to just like put on this persona. You may deal with customers who may be challenging, difficult and irate, but your job is to like be calm and put on a smile. And so like as literature talks about emotional labor, it talks about the fact that it exists in service industries and service industries tend to be predominated by women. In fact, the five most held occupations by women are all in some way related to the service industry. And all five of the top five service industry categories are all predominated by women. So like there's this just inexorable tie between jobs that women hold and beliefs and how they should behave and express their emotions. I'm thinking chicken and egg thing. Like I wonder if we expect those from those jobs because they've historically been predominantly women or if women are in those fields because women have a better ability. I don't know what the correct way to say this, but like women are generally more known for their ability to perform emotional labor. So like I wonder, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, We tend to like self-select into certain things as well. So like I think there are issues of, you know, Western American society because that's what I can speak to. Like I think there are issues of the beliefs about emotional expression with women, but I also think that there's this idea of people self-selecting jobs because they're like, oh, this seems to be a good fit or like Mm -hmm. this seems to fit skills that I have. I remember when I was in college in sociology of sex and gender, but they were talking about like two different scenarios and they used like gender neutral language, but they made it to where you would assume one of the people in the scenarios was a woman just based on like our own indoctrinated bias that we've had since birth. I don't remember the way they phrased it, but what it was was a server at a restaurant or like having dinner at someone's house. And it was like, when you're at someone's house, you assume the woman is cooking. But when you are at a restaurant, you assume that the man is cooking. The explanation was that your brain stereotype is not around cooking, it's about servitude. So whichever position is more subservient is the one your brain is going to put the woman in, not the one that's related to food. Whoa! I'm going to read you a riddle. You've probably heard this. Everybody's fucking heard this, but okay. A father and son have a car accident and they're both badly hurt. They are both taken to separate hospitals. When the boy is taken in for an operation, the surgeon says, I cannot do the surgery because this is my son. How is this possible? 
It's his mother who's a surgeon. Right. In the time that I saw it circulating on Facebook, which was many moons ago, it was really difficult for people to answer it. They were like, they couldn't. Do you want to hear the funniest thing ever? Yeah. I used to go to this super hippie church and we did that riddle one time and one of the kids goes, oh, the dads are gay. I love that. And I was like, fuck yeah, they're gay. That's the riddle. Teaching in LA, like. That's why when I started on TikTok, I genuinely didn't understand a lot of people's experiences in other parts of the world because that is something a hundred million percent my kindergartners would say. I was like, women can't be doctors, but doctors can be gay. That's progress. That, yeah, that's progress. I, I will say that is progress. There's there's other progress to be made. If I had to choose I mean, between no progress and gay men being allowed to be doctors, obviously I'm gonna pick gay men being doctors. That's true. We, we're here for that. It's I, Pride Month, baby. you're a man so like what how did you come to this place where you are yeah i it's it's interesting that i i kind of had to reflect upon that too because um i mentioned my studies mixed methods which means i'm doing like quantitative things i'm collecting like survey data but it's qualitative and a big part of qualitative research is really thinking about your positionality essentially like as a researcher like who are you and what biases do you bring to the table because it's really important in the way that you interpret the data and so i i had to think through this when i had settled and realized that this is something i wanted to pursue i I think it was three things in particular the first of them was i studied history in undergrad and my capstone course, you essentially had to focus on a topic and do archival research. And we ended up with me researching the experience of disabled women at the University of Illinois, because University of Illinois is pretty famous for being essentially the first inclusive campus in terms of like accessibility. And so there was, you know, amazing archival research that went back, you know, to post-World War II. Go Illinois. Yeah, Yeah. seriously. Did not see that coming, but hell yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, like they had accessible dorms and like, you know, curb cuts and like all the things that you expect for like physical accessibility, they did. And and spending an entire semester just kind of, you know, going through that, I was like, wow, as someone who probably didn't really think about this, because I was just like the athletic kind of fratty boy, like that was my energy back then. Um, I think that really changed my opinion on like, I really am enjoying learning about an identity that's different than mine. And the, the second is my mom is like my best friend. And Aww. so we're super close. And so I think that as someone who like, yo, I stand my mom and you know, my mom is Mexican, my mom's Latina. So like, I understand the marginalization that comes with, you know, having Latina mom. Like, I get that. And so I think the second part of it was like, dude, I, I got to support women because like, dude, I'm out here trying to support my mama and, and every other woman. I'm biracial. My dad's black. And so uh, for me, like being a biracial male that I understand that like, yeah, as, as a man, there are definitely privileges I have, but they can almost quickly be canceled out by my outward appearance and the amount of melanin I have. And so I think as someone who believes, you know, so deeply in intersectionality and the fact that like, if we're trying to find liberation for people, it doesn't need to be siloed. Let Let's fight for people together. And I think that's why my least favorite acronym is the TERF, you know, the the feminists who essentially are exclusive of trans folks. That's a prime example, right, of like, you can be so down for one cause of someone who's marginalized, but the fact that like, if you can antithetically be against a different cause, I feel like it just ruins the entire ideal. And so for me, I've done like the complete 180 of that is someone who has constantly fought for the rights of people of color and black and brown folks and who is a consultant for a disability-based nonprofit. This just goes in with my vibe of intersectionality. But I definitely get being like a cishet 
male who's researching women's emotions that I'm like, I get that like, there's gotta be the question of like, how do we get here? Cause I, I had to ask myself that too. Like, bro, how'd I get here? I'm thinking about like my own college experience. I majored in sociology, which there's not that many white straight dudes majoring in sociology out here in these streets. And I noticed the few that there were when you're talking about intersectionality and how you had been passionate about race-based equality issues. And then you start learning more about gender. I had kind of the I don't want to say opposite, but like inverted experience where I had my experiences as a woman and I knew that being a woman came with hardship and things like that. So then it became a lot easier to learn about other groups that were facing hardships because I don't want to say I could relate, but you can kind of draw parallels between like, oh, this is what gender discrimination feels like. I can see the same themes of inequality and supremacy and all these things coming through to these other groups. And I've noticed when I was in school, people that outwardly don't appear to be marginalized it's a lot bigger of a hurdle to understand stuff when you don't have first experience feeling marginalized. Yeah. So your thought process of kind of how you got to your research makes complete sense because even though it's not something that you've experienced, I think you have had enough other experiences that you can really like kind of understand this and I think it's really hard to do academic research on something that you are having a firsthand experience with because it's just hard. Yeah, and I think you made a really interesting point of like people who hadn't experienced marginalization having a hard time kind of conceptualizing that I think is really fascinating because I think for me, like the idea of a zero sum game isn't there. I'm not like, oh cool, like if I get right, someone else doesn't. And I tell people like avoid the oppression Olympics. Just because like one group had a hard time doesn't mean it's like we can both have hard times, they just look different. White women could have struggles that look different than black women, but that doesn't mean that y'all both didn't struggle in some way. And so I think that's kind of like the lens I always try to keep when I think about this. It's interesting that you bring up the um, oppression Olympics because that's something that's been on my mind actually a lot. Whatever's on fire, I'm going to talk about. You could talk about everything, right? But is that being weaponized between groups where it's like, well, I'm oppressed, so shut the fuck up. When you look at online discourse, there's sometimes a butting of heads in that area. Yeah, no, I think it's it's really challenging that, right, like being black, especially like post 2020, that so much of our country had to reflect on things. The thought was like, we really need to just focus on black folk right now. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Like we, we should have been doing this for a long time. Like, like y'all, I'm glad y'all stopped hitting snooze and woke up. <laughs> yeah. Hello. At least from my position. And I know that people feel differently in different spaces. But for me, I'm like, I will continue to fight for my communities, but my communities aren't the only ones that are struggling. So like we said, the struggle could be different. And if someone wanted to quantify, like as you know, somebody does quantitative research if you wanted to find a way to quantify who struggled more based upon like generational wealth and like i'm sure there's a way that you could do that some economist or sociologist or historians like oh i know how to do that i'm sure you could do that but to me it would also be really fruitless and superfluous because i'm just like at the end like we just have to find a way to essentially find liberation for anyone who's marginalized and that looks different the fight to get there is different for sure and the feelings that come with it are different you know we can't fight in the same way for everyone but i don't just want to like focus all my attention on one thing i want to pick people up and take them with me or have people take and i think them. also like the focusing on one group of people is how we got here so it's not what's going to get us out of it you know what i mean like inclusion is the opposite so i think the thought of like we have to focus on this we have to focus on this like being intersectional is the solution here so like to me the whole oppression olympics is something that kind of annoys the shit out of me because i just like to be productive and i think that conversation a lot of times goes to a very unproductive place yeah. It's like arguing about the wrong thing. Often. Exactly. It's yeah. like, 
like, yeah, us being focused on one group of people is how we get inequality. So we need to focus on every group of people to get out of it. And us arguing about like my group versus your group is just still us in the mindset that we can only focus on one group at a time. Well, it's something that we see in the classroom a lot, right? Like when we talk about students with disabilities and IEPs, oftentimes in my classroom, my students will notice that. They're like, well, why does so-and-so get this and I don't? And it's like, well, you don't need that. And I always tell my kids, everybody needs something, but we don't all need the same thing. Equity is not equality. There's a picture of kids on the fence and they're all different heights. Some of them can see over the fence and some of them can't. That's equality, right? Like the fence is all the same height. But then when you take the kids and you put them on boxes, then they all can see over the fence. And then like liberation, of course, is we break down the fence and there's just nothing there. You know, like that's the ultimate goal. Like we all want what we need to get where we need to go. But I think the way we get there is research like yours. I'm so excited to see what you come out with when you finish your doctorate. I think it's going to be beautiful. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's been amazing that TikTok has been this like amazing space of why don't I just talk about what I'm researching? Like the first time I did it, I was like, oh, people are struggling emotionally as educators and are happy that someone is looking into it, has words to describe what they're feeling, that there are a thousand other people in the comments who are experiencing the same thing. I love the little comments that people have about like, take this as far as you can take it. And I'm like, no, really, because it feels weird for me to say, but I'm like, oh, if I like continue to stay on this path and like do things and show meaningful data and go about the process in a very intentional way, I can publish things and I can end up in policy spaces and I can work with other professors. As someone who's also currently in the classroom and like hearing from other teachers on TikTok, I'm like, we are on well. But I think the reasons that people think we're unwell are not the reasons that I'm researching. And I think that's a big thing for me too, is that like people say to me, yeah, oh, teaching. Oh, it's so hard. Like you're overworked and underpaid. And people just think that like teaching is hard who aren't educators because we don't get enough money. And like, oh, the kids are bad. Or like, oh, you have to grade a lot of papers. And it's like, all that's true. But then all that leads to us being stressed out and emotionally exhausted and experiencing depersonalization, which is showing up in my work and experiencing reduced personal accomplishment, which is showing up in my work. And so it's like the effect of all that is what we have to live with when we leave there at 315. We're struggling emotionally. Right. If it was just contained to the hours of work, if it was just in our contract hours that we were struggling, we wouldn't see the teacher exodus in the way that we do, in my opinion. I haven't done the research on it, but I just, I feel like the shit that we take home beyond just our job duties, that is what's leading to us leaving. You putting words to what people are feeling is so important. Everybody wants to feel seen at the end of the day. Has there been anything that's like really surprised you or caught you off guard so far? Yeah, a lot of things. Um, (laughs) I would say, actually, I've spent the past couple weeks just doing a really, really deep dive into the quantitative data that I have. The video that I most recently posted that people had tagged y'all to, you know, have us link up was me initially looking at the data. And then I started actually like doing statistical analysis and running a few tests. I would love to be smart one day. I don't, like you say, test and I'm confident you're doing something effective. I have no idea what that even looks like. I'm assuming Excel is involved. A scatter plot. SPSS has been my vibe. So yes, absolutely. It does all of the things for me, which is great. SPSS. I'm Googling it. Yes, I, I both know what that is and also like it. It's a statistical software suite developed by IBM. Yes. <laughs> what does IBM stand for? Internet business machine? I'm going to find out. Is that right? We must find out. I feel like it's not far off. International business machines. Ooh, I was okay. so 
way. So fucking close. Because you are fucking smart. No, you it's are. because when I was a kid, my dad's friend worked for IBM. So they were like the first people that had like a computer in their house. And they cut a hole in their pantry so that they could have the computer at a desk. And then the big computer parts were like in the pantry because it was so ridiculously large. So what what else has surprised you in your research? Yeah, tell us everything. Yeah. It's funny because I find myself laughing too that I'm like, I'm not actually smart. I'm just using SPSS and it's making me seem to be smart. Like everything that I'm about to say, we can thank SPSS for. I'm like, I mean, like I did an analysis of variants, but like I didn't do it by hand. Like people who like got doctorates in like the 90s were doing this by hand. They're probably now like, oh, well, <laughs> look at him using technology. So like the first thing that I noticed was a difference in just like straight up arithmetic mean of just like average score and means of emotional exhaustion for younger educators or early career educators. So educators under the age of 30 or educators who are in years like zero through 10. And so account zero is your first year. And that's a video that I made of just like first look, just eyeballing it. Younger educators are more emotionally exhausted. And there's probably a million reasons for that that I cannot wait to figure out. Because they're always on those damn phones. <laughs> Sorry, and then I was like, okay, what's going on with the group of educators under 30 and then years one through 10? And I found there is a statistically significant difference in the rates of depersonalization. And depersonalization is one of the three components of burnout. Burnout is composed of depersonalization, reduced personal accomplishment, and emotional exhaustion. And so depersonalization is one of those three. And that can look a number of ways, but that's, you know, the detachment from your surroundings or distancing yourself from, you know, those who you serve. And so I was like, oh. So if you, feel the need to sit in your car in silence for 30 minutes? Yes. That's a symptom. Yes. Is that not a good sign? <laughs> 100%. That's how we know that things are not where they need to be. It sounds like you're speaking about a friend, perhaps. Maybe even some people on this podcast. Maybe two. I'm only in there seven minutes today. That's pretty good. Seven seems like an improvement. When I was teaching, it was like low 20s. Like now I'm down to seven. I did that every lunchtime while I was pregnant. I got some good eating in my depersonalization time. The enrichment time in my enclosure. And I think that's the one that kind of like low-key shook me a bit because I feel like if I were to just go randomly talk to a bunch of educators, they would all say that they do this. That like when my students are away and I have my prep or plan time, sometimes I'll just sit in the dark or like I'll eat my lunch by myself at least once or twice a week. Or five times a week. Exactly. And I think it's just something that I never conceptualized because it's sad that it almost feels normalized to me that I'm like, oh, of course you sit in your car after. Like I take the train to and from work now, but when I drove, I would always sit in my car after. And I like didn't think anything of it. But now that like I have an understanding that's one of the three components of burnout and understanding there's a statistically significant difference in depersonalization rates for younger educators, I'm like, this is problematic. It's just like one test cascaded into another, into another, into like, ooh, there must be more. I found that there is a strong, statistically significant association between emotional exhaustion and depersonalization, which that makes sense. If you're experiencing emotional exhaustion, you are also experiencing depersonalization. But there is a moderate negative association between personal accomplishment and depersonalization. So as your rates of depersonalization go up, your feelings of personal accomplishment go down. Again, in my head, I'm like, duh, but I didn't find the same association for emotional exhaustion and personal accomplishment. Wait, so that means like 
if you're in your car, not in your person, you're depersonalized as hell, you're not going to feel like you have that many accomplishments, like outside of work, like personal, like. Yeah. And a lot of personal accomplishments really work related, right? Like if, so for teachers who are experiencing this depersonalization, they're not feeling this sense of personal accomplishment within their job. But that same relationship wasn't statistically significant for those who were experiencing emotional exhaustion. And I was talking to my doctoral advisor about this and I was like, what do you think this might be? And she's like, teachers are emotionally exhausted all the time, but they still feel like they're doing good in their classroom. Like there are educators who are tired, who are worn out, stressed out, but they can still leave there being like, I'm making a difference with these students. But when you're feeling depersonalized, remember that idea of depersonalization is the detachment from your surroundings. You're distancing yourself from the individuals in which you serve. So if you're feeling depersonalized, it's harder to feel that sense of personal accomplishment if you don't feel that connection with the people that you're working with. That if you're a teacher, like that kind of synergy that you get is like, I'm watching these students who I care so deeply about succeed. But if you're experiencing depersonalization, that feeling isn't the same. And so I think that's what really got me in my day. That is so interesting. And what you just said just like made a light bulb happen to me. One of the points in my teaching career where I was at my absolute lowest emotionally, like just depersonalized as fuck was when we were doing a lot of standardized testing and lots of things. So I was not seeing my classes every day altogether. And I'm now thinking about it like it was like a two week period where most days I would only have a couple of them or I'd be covering classes I didn't know or I'd be monitoring standardized tests with kids that I didn't know. I felt just so fucking awful about myself because of what you're saying. Like I didn't have any of that personal connection. I wasn't feeling any personal accomplishment at work. So I was just with random kids that I didn't have a relationship with. And I'm sure those kids are great and had relationships with other teachers, but it's not the same thing. Yeah. As educators, right? Like that's the thing that really keeps us going. That's why most of us it chosen to, you know, do this. We want to like be that person who can make that difference, whether it be from a social emotional standpoint or an academic standpoint, or just being the consistent human in someone's life. Like we want to feel that we can be there. And when you're not feeling that, it leads to attrition, turnover. And I feel like everyone who's commented on my TikToks about like, this is what happened to me and I left my job in the middle of the year. I'm happy that you chose what was best for you because I want to make teaching a more sustainable practice. And I want educators when they're experiencing these emotions, I want to like develop some interventions as to like, how can we help you in a way that you can stay in the profession? But for educators where it becomes too much, you need to leave because this job is not your life. As educators, we make teaching as a part of our identity and it is to an extent. But if it gets to the point that like you're not enjoying time with your family, your partner, or your friends, or your health is struggling, that's when you need to leave. There's this idea called allostatic load and it's this idea of long-term exposure to stress leading to physiological strain on your body and it plays you at risk for disease deterioration of your overall health. Oh no. Look, if you're getting to the point and I've had teachers comment in my videos like that they've become physically ill because they're so stressed out and burned out. I'm like, cool, leave. Like you said you were in the ER, leave. I love the teaching profession, but I love people's livelihood more. I want people to be happy. Teaching will always be there. That's the thing that like I've had to tell myself. It will be there after you're done doing this thing. When you get your head on straight, when you figure out what it is that you really want to to do whenever education maybe starts going in an upward trajectory like it will be there it is not worth you sacrificing your personhood your mental health etc 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 like you don't have to be a martyr
harder. One of our goals, I think both of you when you're researching Raz and I on this podcast is like thinking about what would make teaching more sustainable. And one thing I'm wondering, and I hate to say this because I hate to be like, the solution is your stress is doing more stuff. But I'm wondering like how having personal accomplishments outside of the classroom impacts that sustainability. Because I think it's, in my opinion, really important for people to have something that they're doing just for them. And that's personal so that when you are in those moments where you are feeling depersonalized at work, instead of just thinking about it 25-8, like you were saying, you can't enjoy your family, you can't enjoy your partner. I think like teachers cultivating hobbies and things outside of education so that their whole identity is not so wrapped up in education, I think can do a lot towards sustainability as well. But again, I hate to be like, girl, teaching's totally fine. Start needlepoint and you'll feel better. But I really do think that it might help. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my goal with this data is to you know work to develop an intervention for educators. Um, and what that looks like, I don't know yet. But as we're thinking about like ways to reduce stress, it's like, is there a way that we can talk about like, how are you managing your time as a human? At what point do you decide that you don't have to grade this right now? Like, it's nice outside. Go for a walk. Go get a drink. This will be here tomorrow. Like, I know your students really want their math test back tomorrow, but like, you have prep tomorrow and you can grade the math test then. Like, one thing that I would tell myself as a teacher, if anyone needs this, is that your students won't remember if you got their test back to them in two days, three days, or four days, but they will remember if you have a psychotic break in front of them. So, <laughs> yeah, that's those are words to live by. So, if you're just at your end and you're like, I have to get this test back. Do you? Like, do you? <laughs> and to like, I've heard so many stories of teachers who have left in the middle of the year. And I've heard some people in these conversations say like, that's really selfish. What about the students? <laughs> One of the studies that really got me into this line of stress and burnout was this study done by Oberlin and Schoenert Reichel in 2016. I wish I had the resources to do such a study. Essentially what this study did was it looked at the morning cortisol level of students. Cortisol is what's released when you are stressed out. And so in this study, they took the morning cortisol level of a large swath of students, like thousands. Their findings ended up being that educators who were struggling emotionally, so essentially those who were experiencing burnout, were leading to higher cortisol levels in students. So educators who had higher burnout levels were resulting in higher morning cortisol levels for their students. So there's this idea of like burnout contagion, which is seen between educators and the idea of emotions being contagious has been cited in numerous places in literature. So like for those educators who are not well, as much as we try to to hide it, which I talk about emotional labor, we can't always do that. And so that is then impacting students. There are, you know, numerous studies that show that educators who have the highest stress levels or burnout levels compared to their colleagues, their students are performing the worst on standardized assessments. Now, we all have feelings about standardized assessments, but it's also telling us something, right? That like these educators are struggling to instruct to the best of their ability when they're stressed and burned out. There's a final study that talks about the idea of stressed educators make poor implementers. And so educators who are stressed and burnt out do a very poor job of implementing with fidelity curriculum or like SEL practices. Or IEPs. Right. Yes. How the fuck are you going to implement an IEP if you're drowning? That's my ultimate thing. It's like you have to implement an IEP to fidelity. Curriculum, okay, yes, we struggle with that. We struggle with everything. But you have to do that. If you're always dealing with your own mental health, you're going to be dealing with your own shit, just staying above water. Your differentiation is going to be like not 
to the best of its ability because differentiation takes time. If you have kids on a 504, if you have kids on a behavior plan, you're not going to be able to do it. Leaving in the middle of the year, sometimes that is the most compassionate thing that you can do for your students. If you are drowning, your work environment as a teacher is your student's learning environment. I just told a story, what, 30 minutes ago that my student who I loved, who who still to this day loves me, she doesn't even remember kindergarten. Students are very adaptable. They're more adaptable than you think. Take care of yourself. That's my opinion, personally. Students get maternity and paternity subs all the time, right? They have this interruption of, and like, I've had student teachers the past two years. So like, my classes have had another human come in and be me for months at a time. And like, yeah, there's an adjustment period, Mm -hmm. but like, they make it. (laughs) Like, they do. They do. And so I, I think that's an important part of this conversation is like, I'm very much a proponent of like, making teaching sustainable but like if we get to a certain point and I've had friends say to me like I'll go back to teaching at some point like I'd love to but it's just right now is not the time for me that's okay I feel that I feel it too and that's how I am right now it's like if I had gone back November 28th like I intended to I don't know that I would have been my best self everybody's a little tired of the saying you can't pour from an empty cup but like it's true I love when academic research validates the things that I just thought and so I appreciate you for doing that we covered a lot of stuff I loved having you here I I like like to nerd out over stuff like this me too like I love a research I love a quantitative study also a qualitative study. This has been amazing. I'm so thankful that you even came here to talk to us and like teach us things. I think there is so much to be learned from you. And I am so excited for everyone to not only hear what you had to say today, but follow where you go because this is just the beginning. We're going to be getting a lot more data and a lot more research from you as you progress through your doctorate program. And I'm stoked. Yeah. And I appreciate y'all having me. I think this was so cool to just kind of talk about things that I think that, that matter to all of us. My hope is that I can just further validate what we're feeling, I think, is what I think I approach this. So this has been awesome. Two final questions for you. One, if there's anything else you want to share with the people, go for it. And two, you're teaching full-time and doing PhD research. So how's your burnout going, my brother? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, dude, like, honestly, I've joked with people. I'm like, maybe I should have taken my survey and just seen, like, if mine was one of those outliers, like, I'm doing my day. I'm just like, oh, I'm like, you know, looking at a histogram or a QQ plot or, like, Looking at these cars and be like, I think huh. you should just submit like 17 hours worth of vlog footage for your dissertation <laughs> where you're just like, it's day 247. <laughs> but I still haven't given up and watched The Office or eaten mint yet. Like, I'm still not there. I'll never get that low. <laughs> I'll never, I'll never sink to this. Do you feel the same about Parks and Rec? I was made to watch it at one point, and I will say I was made to watch it. I thought it was fine. <laughs> Neutral feelings, not the hill I'm going to die on. There's a lot of hills I refuse to die on. I might die on the Office Hill. That's one of the ones I might. I don't like Parks and Rec, so I'm going to leave that in and see how many people unfollow me for that. But I, I Parks and Rec. I'm sorry. Thank you guys so much for listening today. We love you so much. Thank you, Alex, for joining us. This was so, so amazing. Like, seriously, I could talk to you, I think, for like three hours probably. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate y'all. And if you're on your way to work, make sure to depersonalize on your way home. <laughs> Oh no. Okay, well, we love you so much.
just as a disclaimer, because I am someone who is actively teaching, everything on this podcast is my personal opinion and does not reflect my district, my state, my employer, my students, or my admin. Everything on this podcast was recorded on personal time, on personal equipment, and is a completely separate endeavor from my school district. Yeah, leave her alone. (laughs) 